Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about law and identity in colonial South Asia, Parsi Legal Culture, 1772 to 1947. The book is published by the University of Cambridge Press in 2015, and is written by Mitra Sharafi. Mitra is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Wisconsin. The Parsis, who are also known as Zoroastrians, were deeply entwined with the colonial legal system of British India and Burma, far beyond what one might expect from their relatively small numbers. So this book explores this anomaly and how, as legislators, lawyers, litigants, judges, and lobbyists, the Parsis managed to maintain the contours of their distinctive ethno-religious community. It has fascinating legal cases, lively personalities, and a real deep and rich discussion about how identity and litigation interact. As such, it's a real compelling and engaging account of a community with a really unique and intriguing relationship with colonial rule. I had the pleasure of speaking with Mitra just a few moments before. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for a chance to talk about your wonderful book on Parsi legal culture in colonial South Asia. Now, before we turn to the book in more detail, for the benefit of those listening who might not be familiar with the Parsis and their position in Indian society, could you please briefly tell us a little bit about this community and then also why you were interested in researching Parsi legal tradition? Yes, the Parsi community um, is an ethno-religious minority that originally um, was based in Persia and migrated to India in the centuries after the 7th century um, Muslim conquest of Persia. And they migrate to Western India, what is today Gujarat, sort of South Central Gujarat, and then under British rule migrate um, again to the city of Bali. Bombay, which is um, rising and turning into this huge commercial metropolis. Under British rule, the Parsis do very well, they prosper, um, especially as intermediaries in trade between other South Asian traders and the British. And the place where they really make their big money is in the opium trade. Um, Parsis are leading shippers of opium from India when the whole thing is legal, from the British side at least. Um, they then take these profits and um, sink them into the industrialization of India in the 19th century, and they go into the professions. So you see a lot of Parsi mm-hmm. uh, physicians and lawyers from the 19th century onwards. Um, and it's the law part, of course, of that that interests me. I started noticing that uh, there are a lot of Parsi lawyers in the records I was looking at, um, and there are a lot of Parsi lawsuits. Uh, And most interestingly of all, there were these lawsuits which were not just Parsis on one side, but Parsis suing other Parsis in the colonial courts. And that was the first time I realized there's something really unusual going on here. For some reason, people in this community are not settling their, you know, sensitive religious and family 
disputes within the community. They're taking them outside of the colonial courts. So that's what really got me started, this question of what's going on here and why are Parsis suing Parsis in the colonial courts at such a disproportionate rate? Um, over time, I realized that uh, they had a, an even larger and kind of more impressive legal culture going uh, from the mid-19th century onwards, and that was that there were Parsi lawyers and judges in the mainstream courts. They were kind of managing these cases between Parsis very often. And then also there were um, Parsis who were getting organized in the community, proposing drafting, proposing legislation that would govern the community, and then eventually getting it passed into law. And so Parsi personal law, that is family and inheritance law, becomes its own distinct separate entity because of efforts in the Parsi community. So it was really this realization that there's a very impressive, um, very impressive kind of mechanics going on in this community and that it seemed like they were doing this earlier and in more concentrated and extreme ways than any other South Asian communities. That's what really got me started on Parsi legal culture. <laughs> and you have a background in legal studies, right? Right, right. So um, my background, um, I'm originally Canadian, but I went to the UK and studied law. Um, and then I did a, a PhD in history in the US. So it's kind of a law history sandwich. <laughs> <My background. laughs> perfect. So this, this is yeah, the perfect person to, to do this sort of research. So now in the book, you, you analyze together litigation, legislation and the legal profession. So why was it important for you to bring all these three aspects together? Well, that's kind of a question about the state of the field, I would say, because most work on South Asian legal history until now has been heavily focused on the history of legislation, the history of statutes. Um, and there's been comparatively less work on uh, what happened in the courts, the case law, um, and in turn, uh, not very much work on the history of the legal profession. And so what I realized is that the field is kind of cut into these three little discrete pockets with legislation dominating. Um, and I think that's a result of the bifurcation of the, of the colonial archive. Most people who have written on South Asian legal history have been coming at it as um, historians, pure historians, and, and they use the archives that they usually use, which is state archives, um, archives like the British Library, National Archives of India, Maharashtra State Archives. And those places are marvelous when it comes to the history of the life of a bill as it travels into its privileged status as an act in some cases. So you get the whole history of the statute and how people were lobbying for different um, positions and different texts and then which version won out. That's all wonderfully documented at the British Library or in Delhi at the National Archives of India. But um, what you don't get so much of is uh, case law. Sometimes you get records in the, in the state archives of cases, but those are only a little tiny slice of the whole kind of universe of case law. Those are only cases that involve the state in some way or that the state was watching because it thought that they were particularly politically important. Um, but really, like I said, that's just a tiny sliver of all of the cases. And so to get the full case law picture, uh, what we have to do is leave 
the state archives where we usually do our work as historians and go into the courts, go into functioning courts like um, the Bombay High Court, which is where I did a lot of my work. Or I also did a lot of work at the Privy Council, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which is the highest, the apex court for the British Empire. Um, I have uh, friends, colleagues in the field who are now doing really exciting work at the Madras High Court or the Allahabad High Court or the um, Supreme Court of India. So all of those courts are also archives. And I just, I think it took us a while to realize it, but they all have old records of case law, um, unpublished archival records, which do not exist at the state archive. So what I tried to do in my, in my book was to create kind of an integrated, unified legal history where I brought together the history of statutes from the state archives with the history of case law from the courts. Um, and then equally, there's a really interesting um, third piece of this, which is the history of the legal profession. And so up till now, I think most of the work there has been looking at the history of bar councils and the history of professionalization. But what I wanted to do was um, was kind of bring a new lens to the legal profession. I'm calling it the new history of colonial lawyering. And, and my approach has been that we need to consider the, um, the, the religious, community, linguistic, cultural richness of lawyers' own backgrounds, South Asian lawyers' own backgrounds, and connect that with the content of their legal work. And so to ask ourselves, how does the fact that, you know, this lawyer, this judge was Parsi, how does that affect uh, the interpretation that he is um, advocating for in a case over Parsi religious trusts? I think it's relevant. Um, and so what I tried to do was look at Parsi legal professionals as cultural intermediaries or intellectual middlemen in the translation of their own community backgrounds into law and equally how they translate law for their community. So the big picture here is that I'm bringing together those three pieces, the, the legislation, the litigation, and the legal profession, and creating a kind of an integrated um, legal history. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of work that we can do in the field of that kind. Wonderful, wonderful. And I think for me as a reader from, from outside, it, it really brought it home, especially some of these individual characters. It really, they really stayed with me long after I read the book. So, and I hope we get a chance to talk about some of those a little bit later. But now let's turn to one of the sort of one of the two or three big questions that you, that you ask yourself in the book. And, what, and one of these was, why did the Parsi so often go to state-run courts to settle their own community's internal conflicts? Well, I think it all started in the late 18th century when um, the colonial state um, uh, kind of made it made a deal, you could say, that personal law um, would continue to be um, religion-specific for Hindus and Muslims. In other words, if you were Hindu and you had a matrimonial dispute, you would be governed by Hindu law as applied by the state courts. And if you're a Muslim, same story. A lot of people, a lot of communities got left out of that deal, and the Parsi community was one. So for the Parsi community, what they got was English law. 
And of course, the, that struck them as unfair and inappropriate. I think the reason that it happened was that the um, colonial administration could see any signs of a religious legal tradition within Zoroastrianism. Um, and the truth is that that was there centuries earlier, but it kind of got lost in the migration um, from Persia to India. Um, so that's the kind of trigger that gets the Parsi community mobilized initially and I think pushes them to get organized and to learn about how colonial law works um, and then to try to change that application of English law. And what they do is they, they do get organized, they lobby for legislation, and eventually what they get is um, Parsi personal law. It's not grounded in the kind of um, translation of ancient texts, which is the model that the British state applies to Hindu and Muslim communities. It's not like that. Parsi personal law is a, is a kind of amalgam of what these Parsi elites, Parsi male elites in Bombay, what they, kind of the vision they have for their community, um, combined with some customary norms, but it's not grounded in um, ancient Persian Zoroastrian texts. So it looks very different from what Hindu and Muslim communities get. And it's really a story about community agency and how the Parsi community gets to shape and create its own personal law in a way that's very unusual. <laughs> and exactly, it not only were lots of well, not, not only did lots of people from the Parsi community go to court um, for their own disputes, but there's already, there were also lots and lots of parties involved in the making of law. So why, why was this? Well, and that's a fascinating pattern. And, and it seems to start in the East India Company period when you have Parsis be, uh, working as clerks in the East India Company courts. Um, and what seems to happen is that it's that first generation who kind of, in their day job, are learning about how the courts work. Um, and what they do is they go home and they harness that knowledge um, and th that skill set. They harness it. They go back to their community and they say, look, we have to, um, we have to figure out how to um, get statutes, get, create Parsi personal law, essentially. We deserve our own body of law, too. Um, and that's kind of a multi-decade project which eventually works in 1865. You get the first big Parsi matrimonial and inheritance legislation. But that first generation are also the people who send their sons to London to become barristers. And so those barristers are like courtroom lawyers, litigators, as opposed to the solicitors who do all of the other legal business. And that first generation, um, so that first generation sends their sons off to London to the Inns of Court, and then many of those people um, also send their children. So you get this multi-generational string of Parsi law students who go to London, become barristers, come back. Um, some of those barristers eventually climb up the ranks and become judges. And so you get this very interesting, um, it's really like a five-generation pattern that I see between the mid-19th century and then I go up to 1947 and independence. Um, and over the span of that five generations, you get this um, creation of a, a core of Parsi lawyers and then judges who uh, just, you know, as luck would have it, end up 
playing a big role in a lot of the Parsi versus Parsi litigation, even though that litigation is happening in the just general Bombay courts. Um, and so you get a whole bunch of Parsi lawyers and judges. At the same time, like I said, you also get a whole bunch of Parsi versus Parsi lawsuits. And it's kind of a chicken or egg question, you know, which came first? Was it having all these lawyers who um, uh, created an appetite for, for litigation? Or was it the need for um, settling a whole bunch of Parsi disputes that pushed some people to become lawyers, you know, we can never really say, but I think both of these patterns are feeding each other. So the appetite for law, the consumption of law is only growing rather than being sated. <laughs> Wonderful. So now with this sort of big picture in mind, let's turn to the nitty gritty of a particular area of law. Specifically, I'm thinking here about inheritance law, which is really nicely discussed in your book, and especially the how the law governing uh, intestacy, which is when there's no valid will, how this was brought under Parsi control. So could you please tell us why this was so important for the Parsi community and what the specificities of it were? Yes, well, the Parsi community, like I mentioned at the outset, um, kind of rises to, um, comes into huge wealth in the colonial period mm -hmm. through trade and through this kind of mercantile um, tradition, you could say. And so inheritance law is all about the transmission of wealth down the generations. So, you know, so the, so the default principle of distribution that's going to apply when there's no will at all or where there's a will but it hasn't been correctly carried out, right? That becomes really important. And, and frankly, in all legal systems that allow people to use wills, uh, the default body, the intestacy regime, is super, super important because, you know, it's always amazing how many people don't <laughs> write wills or don't do it correctly. Um, and, and so... In the Parsi context, you know, if you want, you can write a will, and, and the Parsi community does um, eat that up, you could say. That's a, that's a British um, colonial concept that gets introduced to all communities in India, and the elites from all communities uh, can't resist, essentially, because, you know, um, it gives incredible power to the head of the family. But um, it's in this other domain where I'd say the Parsi community kind of claws back uh, a lot of autonomy, so it's this intestacy regime that where they really do do change the situation as it's been presented to them by by the British, and so British in, British intestacy law tends to English intestacy law tends to concentrate wealth in a small number of people and in a in a downstream direction. That is to say, that wealth travels down to the next generation; it doesn't travel up. To the previous generation. And that is a situation for the Parsis when they are given straight up English law. Um, but what they do is they manage to change all of that through this lobbying and legislation project of theirs. And, and things look very different in their model. And I think it reflects a big difference of values between the Parsi community and English law. And so the Parsi principle is Rather than concentrating the wealth, rather than winner takes all, which is what English law does, um, Parsi intestacy law spreads the wealth, and it spreads it across 
a large number of people and not only in a downstream direction, also back up. So a Parsi head of family would provide in his will not only for his descendants and not only for people who married into his family, um, let's say, you know, the widows of his children, but also perhaps to his own parents if they're still alive. So all of that's radically non-English. Um, so that's the first interesting thing about it is it's, it's a total rejection of English law and English values. And it's a great example of Parsi legal skill um, de-anglicizing the law that applies to the Parsi community. But it's also really interesting, and this is a question that political scientists always ask me. It's really interesting because this is a this is a mercantile kind of commercial community by tradition. So how is it that Parsi and Tessa law wants to spread and not concentrate the wealth? That's kind of the opposite of what you would expect, right? If you if you think that this community is completely focused on um, acquiring and concentrating wealth. And the only thing I can say there is, yes, you know, the values, uh, at times the values run against a kind of brute commercial interests of the elites in the community. And, you know, that in itself is interesting. So the English the English rule concentrates wealth. Um, the Hindu joint family also concentrates wealth. Um, and here's a Parsi community that becomes colossally wealthy, at least its elites do, and yet its inheritance law is kind of pulling in the opposite direction. I think it's just a it's just a reflection of the values that there was a sense of duty to a large number of people in the extended family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> makes me uh, makes me start to think in this anthropological terms about structures and inheritance and so on. But let's move on because uh, this book has lots of. Really, I mean, I learned a lot from reading this book. And one of the surprising things that I never knew before was that the Parsi community had juries for matrimonial cases made up of their co-religionists. And this was something that's unique in colonial India. So I was, so my question here is, like, in what ways did this anomaly come about and what were the implications of it? Well, this is um, one of the best examples of um, very tangible gains that came from this Parsi strategy of you know, legalism if you want to call it that. Um, and that is that um, as a result of the you know, lobbying and consultation within the community and then pushing for this legislation, as a result of those efforts in the mid-19th century, what you get is this, um, this jury-based system of matrimonial courts, which nobody else gets. I mean, no other South Asian community gets a jury for their matrimonial disputes in this period or since, even the European community doesn't get a jury. So this is really a, a this is really a great example of what I call Parsi exceptionalism, the ways that the Parsi community gets things that that nobody else in India gets because they're good at using legal um, because they master the mechanics of colonial law. And and what it produces um, is a couple of things. I mean, um, in the book, I, I kind of take a, a masculinity approach to this. Um, Parsi uh, or uh, Muslim and Hindu communities, um, they're, you know, you could say their senior male elites lose a lot of influence within the community when they, um, in the late 18th and early 19th century, when the colonial state uh, translates 
um, texts from uh, their religious traditions and then says this is this is going to be Anglo-Hindu and Anglo-Islamic law because there's no place for the male elites that would have been deciding those cases before. Now the colonial state, colonial courts are going to make those decisions and the judges, um, at least for the first few decades, are usually European, right? So there's a kind of emasculation, you could say, of those Hindu and, and Muslim elites. But in the Parsi community, you still get Parsi male elites deciding these um, matrimonial cases within their own community because those are the people who end up being the jurors. And it is a very elite and a very male um, and very, yeah, group of people. Um, what you also see, they're interesting, the class and gender patterns here because you get these you get these super elites being the jurors. The court itself, much to my surprise, um, was, I call it a court for poor wives in the end, because most of the, most of the parties, most of the plaintiffs coming to the court and asking for divorce or judicial separation um, were women, and they were, they were poor women. They were working-class Parsi women. So it's an amazing archive because it gives us a real sense of the daily lives and struggles of poor Parsi women who are pretty much invisible in all of the other archives that I, that I used. So, so you have this by a factor of two to one or sometimes even three to one, you have these Parsi women coming to the court asking for you know, divorce in most cases, and they usually get it. And so what I, what I argue is that um, we have these class and gender dynamics. We have elite Parsi men disciplining working class Parsi men um, in their marriages. And so you have this very interesting kind of intra-group policing mechanism that's made possible because of the jury. And no other community gets that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. And um, let's uh, let's move on a bit to talk about something else which is fascinating, or rather somebody else which is fascinating, which is this um, Parsi judge named Didi Daba. And he comes up in Chapter 6 when you focus on the litigation surrounding religious trusts. And I was wondering, could you please tell us a little bit about this man, Didi Daba, and, and why he was so influential? Well, Didi Davar, I think um, I spoke earlier about um, this idea of um, treating legal professionals as um, cultural intermediaries. I mean, in a sense, what, what I'm doing is taking that whole literature, which is very rich, about Parsis as trade intermediaries and, and saying, well, we can extend this because they were intermediaries in in law too, right? And Didi Davar is the best example of that. Um, he is the first Parsi judge of the Bombay High Court, and the Bombay High Bombay is the is the center of the Parsi community. I would say is kind of the the, the metropolitan center, the, the the urban center of the Parsi community in this period. And and Bombay High Court is the highest court in that jurisdiction. And and, and so in 1906 he becomes a judge. He's a barrister. He goes to London, has this very um, top notch legal training. Comes back. He's fierce. He's a terrifying cross-examiner in the police courts. Everyone's quite scared of him. He has a real um, intellect, but also a real temper. <laughs> and so 1906, he, he becomes the first Parsi judge of the high court. And, and he presides there until 1916, when he actually um, dies while still a judge. So we've got this decade um, 
when we had the first Parsi judge of the high court. And it's almost like all of these really important um, religious trust cases within the Zoroastrian community. It's like people have been kind of saving them up and just waiting for this moment. Um, and then finally they get a Parsi judge who understands um, the practices, the theology of the community. And then we get this kind of torrent of, of these cases. Um, and he seems to be assigned as the judge in all of them. Now, we don't know a lot about that mechanism, but uh, I think that the colonial state felt like, you know, if they could let a Parsi judge decide these cases, it's much easier for, for, for the Europeans involved because they could say, well, a, a Parsi judge decided that case, you know, um, and so as much as this is kind of an outsider forum, the colonial courts, you've got an insider on the particular case. Um, and so he decides a bunch of these cases about Parsi um, religious, Zoroastrian religious trusts and fire temple construction. Um, and he comes at these cases with his own particular view of community politics. It turns out he is a very orthodox Zoroastrian. Um, and so there's a huge debate at this time. And to this day, actually, there's a huge debate about whether ethnic outsiders should be allowed into the community. Um, should, they be, should they be allowed to, to undergo the initiation ceremony called the Navjot? If so, then presumably they can be married in a Zoroastrian marriage ceremony, and presumably they have access to these colossal religious trust funds they also have access physically to the fire temples, which are supposed to be um, restricted to people within the community and which would be defiled if an outsider walked in. So the question is really, who is a Parsi? What does it mean to be part of this community? Is it just a religious affiliation or is it a, a religious affiliation that's only open to people who have an ethnic connection? And so it turns into, and this is why identity is in the title of the book, it turns into this, um, this question that's right at the core of how Parsis see themselves. And that is, you know, who is a Parsi? Is this a religious label or is it, a, is it an ethnic label as well? And all of that gets fought out in the courts, right? Not in some other community forum. And Sardincha Davar, he ends up becoming knighted. Um, he is the judge who decides, I would say, the single most important case of this nature, which is a case that plays out between 1906 and 1908, where a French woman marries into the um, the Tata family, who are these kind of merchant princes, as they're called, of Bombay. And the question is, can she become a Parsi and or a Zoroastrian? Was she married in a valid Zoroastrian wedding ceremony? And if so, is she entitled? Does she have access to all of those trust funds? Can her body be left for the vultures in the Towers of Silence after her death? Would she theoretically, you know, be entitled to enter into a, a fire temple? There's a later case, there's a sequel to this case that gets decided in 1925 in Rangoon in Burma, where there's a tiny Parsi community. And there it's a, a, a little orphan girl, allegedly um, ethnically 
Indian and not Parsi. She's adopted by a Parsi couple who want to raise her as a Zoroastrian. And then they give her the initiation ceremony and take her into the fire temple in Rangoon. And then there's a big lawsuit that goes all the way to London about whether um, the trustees of that fire temple have to let her in or whether they don't. So Davar decides that case of the French Mrs. Tata and he decides it against the French Mrs. Tata. He says she's not entitled. Uh, she doesn't have access. Um, she can't become Parsi. And then that precedent gets cited as the basis of the, of the Rangoon case. And so um, in a sense, it's, you know, it's all because of Sir Dinsha Davar and his orthodox views that we get those cases going in that direction. <laughs> I think it's a really good example because it, it brings together the argument you were making in the beginning about the reason why you need to think together litigation, legislation, and the legal profession to, to understand to understand the case. And it's a it's such a such a rich such a rich rich case that needs all these different aspects to be explored. So, with with this in mind, I'm wondering whether is there something that I've not covered with my questions that you'd like to highlight for the listeners because we don't even managed to talk about every chapter so far. Well, I would say, um, in my humble opinion, <laughs> one of the most exciting chapters is the very last one, which kind of flows from the, the, all of the issues we just talked about. That is, all of these religious trust cases that, that aren't just about um, who gets to build the temple or aren't about um, uh, temple management, you could say, but they're, they get right at the heart of who is in and who is out. And so in my last chapter, I look at some, some spin-off cases which are actually in the domain of libel law, defamation law, right, reputational damage. But they are about um, notions of racial purity. And, and so these religious trust cases are, are going on and flowing underneath all of them is the rise of this whole field of Parsi eugenics. And the pioneer of Parsi eugenics is, a, is an orthodox Zoroastrian, very charismatic um, solicitor from Bombay named J.J. Um, Vimadalal. And what he does is he takes Euro-American race science um, and he adapts it to South Asia and to the Parsi context. And so he argues that the Parsis are a superior race who should not intermix with other races, even even other so-called superior races like Europeans. Um, and so it was it was quite um, I have to say it was quite shocking to me when I first came across that body of writing. I didn't realize that eugenics was traveling to colonial India and that it was being adopted and adapted and used by non-European populations in their own kind of internal disputes about identity. But that's exactly what's going on. So Vima Dalal creates this whole field of Parsi eugenics. Um, and then he, um, I argue in some other work that I've done that, that he, he is, I think it's really his influence that's responsible for um, the, case, the outcome in the case of the, of the French Mrs. Tata. And, and this is speculation, but but um, I do think this was what was going on. So I think he influences a couple of figures. He influences the most important 
priestly expert witness of the day, who's also a great scholar, um, Sir J.J. Modi. And, and I think um, through Modi and perhaps in other ways, I think he also gets Davar on board and convinces them both that there's no place for ethnic outsiders in the Parsi community. So what we see is this really big shift from a notion of, uh, of, of ritual purity into a notion of racial purity. The earlier idea of ritual purity, if you look in the kind of mid-19th century, what you see is um, fights within the Parsi community about um, priests and what happens when they have kind of ritually, they've done something that has ruined their um, ritual purity and makes it impossible for them to carry out a whole category of purification uh, ceremonies. What happens then? And so the whole the whole question is about ritual purity. And Zoroastrianism, I didn't say this, but it has an elaborate system of purity and pollution laws. Um, but as as Parsis become uh, enthusiastic members of of, of um, the British Empire and enthusiastic British subjects, there's all kinds of um, social and material rewards uh, that they that they receive by, you know, dining with other South Asian elites and with the European elites, by traveling to Britain for commercial and professional and educational opportunities. And all of this, of course, ruins your ritual purity. This becomes less and less important, though, I argue, um, with the rise of this notion of racial purity. So in a sense, if being... Parsi and Zoroastrian is no longer about being um, ritually pure under the Zoroastrian purity laws, then what is it about? And I think this model of racial purity steps in to fill that void and answer that question. It becomes about being racially pure Parsi. And so ironically, this notion of racial purity, I think, is a product or a result of all of the kind of cosmopolitan mixing that goes on in the Parsi community and outside of it um, because the Parsi community is so involved with the British Empire socially, you could say, and commercially. So I think that's a really big and really interesting theme that, that comes out of my work. And it's really, um, it's clearest in that very final chapter, but you see it playing out in the legal context, because um, Parsi lawyers are, are such leaders in the creation of this field of Parsi eugenics, and because these disputes get played out in the legal in the legal setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, you're right. It is a it is an absolutely fascinating chapter, and it really brings together, I think, all these sort of underlying currents that uh, that are running through um, the earlier chapters in the book. So. My final question to you on the podcast today is, um, now that this book is out, what are your current and future projects? Well, this book, um, I worked on this for the last decade. It was part of my PhD research, and then I expanded it. And so for the last 10 years, I've really thought of myself as working in the area of law and religion in history. Um, now I'm shifting over to law and science historically in South Asia. And so my new book project Right now, my tentative title is Fear of the False, 
medical jurisprudence in colonial India. And it's all about how um, colonial obsession with this idea of native mendacity, as they called it, produced a kind of heavy reliance on, on science in the courts. Um, and so I'm looking at uh, the work of a bunch of military medical professionals and institutions, including the chemical examiners who, who tested samples for the state, looked at a lot of toxicology and poisoning. Um, I'm looking at a figure called the imperial serologist who has the greatest job title ever, I have to say. He tested <laughs> blood stains for the colonial state and especially for the courts. Um, and so it seems like uh, a very different area from, from Parsi legal culture, but I have to say that it did start with Parsi legal culture. It started, I got the idea for all of this because when I was going through the records of the Parsi chief matrimonial court, there was a really interesting case of a, um, a Parsi woman and her husband who was a pharmacist. Um, and she was accusing him of forcing her to abort three pregnancies by making her take pills that he had concocted himself. Um, and so that ends up being a case about poisoning. Um, and I also noticed that there were a lot of um, expert witnesses, medical expert witnesses coming through that, that court, about 47 that I tracked. And they would be coming and testifying about um, domestic violence, um, venereal disease, pregnancy, virginity, impotence in men. And so that was the first time that I thought, well, wow, there's so much going on in law and science here. You know, this would make a great project. Um, so that's what got me started. And then I discovered the chemical examiners and their annual reports. And then the imperial serologist breaks off from the chemical examiners. And so I've been kind of addicted to him for the last <laughs> year of my research. Um, and, and there are a lot of Parsi medical experts that keep filtering and popping up in this news story of mine, because as I mentioned earlier, there's this rise of Parsis in the professions. No one has written a proper study of the Parsi medical profession. And so I think someone now definitely needs to do that kind of a sequel or a counterpart to my, to my book. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued and fascinated by this whole new area of um, history of science and medicine meets history of law. Um, and I always smile whenever I see a, a Parsi name pop up amongst my, you know, chemical examiners or <laughs> treatise authors of medical jurisprudence textbooks. So I don't think I'll ever leave the Parsi community behind happily. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a real fascinating project. We look forward to hearing about that a year or a couple of years down the line when that's, uh, yeah, when that's finally done. So I don't know. I one couple more things to say. Firstly is that uh, I really enjoyed the book. Um, it's really, the cases are really, really rich and this is something which you really need to, to pour over as a reader, which maybe we can't talk about uh, on the podcast. So I'd like to recommend it for the listeners at home. And I'd also like to thank you for coming on the podcast and for the chance to talk about your wonderful book. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about law and identity in colonial South Asia by Mitra Sharafi. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope you're all inspired to go and check out the book itself. I also hope that you tune in again next time. Ta-ra!